Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Good evening, and welcome everyone to the first Stock Slammer this year. Um, it's been a difficult few months since our last event in October, with inflation concerns somewhat dampening enthusiasm. Uh, I know my enthusiasm has been damped over the past few months. Um, you know, if we look back at the performance of the picks from the six slams last year, it's, it's pretty clear that conditions pre-May and post-May were really very different. Um, the first two portfolios achieved great performance, um, definitely assisted by the appearance of Tech Capital in April, which is still up 180%, and Reynolds in February, which is up 93%. So if we look at those two portfolios, they're great. Um, February portfolio up 18.5%, uh, April portfolio up 20.9%, great numbers. However, the following four portfolios are all looking pretty sickly, with the majority of their picks being underwater. Notably, Frontier Developments down 36%, and Capita, Synthoma, and Tremor all down around 25%. So that's, you know, they're not great. Uh, and the portfolios themselves, the May one's down 3.8%, June is down 6%, September down 2.7%, and it's just October that has managed to struggle its head above water at 1.8% up. Um, so, yeah. I, I, we all know this market has been difficult for the six, over six months, and I certainly can't promise to make those problems go away as much as I wish I could. Um, however, at least this evening should provide a distraction from the markets for an hour or so. Um, as ever, we have an excellent lineup of speakers and companies with familiar names slang again, along with a number of new faces. Um, in fact, I'd like to you know, specifically thank uh, all the people who volunteered to present following my appeal at the last slam. It makes, it makes a big difference, really does. Um, and we're always looking for volunteers to keep the event fresh. Um, and to, you know, to avoid you seeing the same people every time, apart from me, of course, I'm always here. Um, so don't hesitate to drop us a line if you'd like to participate next time. Um, so now I'll just quickly uh, explain how it all works. Um, each presenter is given three minutes to pitch their idea, which passes very quickly. Um, then we allow another three minutes for questions from the audience. And after that, I'll introduce the next speaker and we start the whole process again and again. Um, all in all, we should be done adjusting in about an hour and then we can all relax. Um, one thing I need to mention is that not everyone presenting here tonight is doing so in their personal capacity. That means we're not giving share tips or advice. These are just investing ideas we're happy to share with you. Um, and to avoid any doubt, always assume the presenters hold the shares they're talking about. And you know they're, they're talking their own book, really. Um, I know I, I generally do. Um, and I'd just like to thank PI World Stockopedia again for their assistance, because none of this could ever happen without them. Well, without further ado, I will uh, start my pitch. Uh, I'm going to talk about Henderson Smaller Companies Investment Trust tonight, ticker HSL. Uh, I know this is a change to the usual company that gets pitched, but bear with me. Um, there are many trusts in this space, uh, but I picked on a HSL due to its balanced approach that suits really a core UK small and mid-cap allocation. Their approach focuses on a market cap range of about 200 million to 1.5 billion, and it selects quality momentum type stocks by focusing on four key criteria. One, model, what, what is the business model? The team are looking for companies with a strong competitive advantages, uh, industry-leading franchises. In short, they want pricing power and an ability to scale. Two, management. The team conduct over 300 management meetings a year to uncover strategy, governance, track record, and the alignment of management with the shareholders. Three, money. The team looks for companies with high free cash flow, where expansion can be self-financing. They also prefer companies with a strong and robust balance sheets, as we all do. And four, momentum. This is looking for companies with uh, positive earnings momentum that are constantly 
beating their earnings expectations. Now, unsurprisingly, this delivers uh, something of a bias towards QM and QBM type shares uh, in Stockopedia parlance, that's high flyers and super stocks. And the average stock rank for the top 10, 20 or 30 holdings is 66, which is pretty good. Uh, the portfolio as a whole contains 108 positions and the top 30 account for 53% of the total assets, while the largest position is just over 3.5% of the portfolio. So there's no real concentration risk here. Uh, now, if we look at the top 10 holdings, there are some familiar names here. And I, uh, I've certainly held six of these companies in the past. So from the top down, we've got uh, Impacts Asset Management, Future, Watchers Switzerland, Bellway, Oxford Instruments, RWS, Synthoma, Learning Technologies, Ultra Electronics, and Team 17. Now, what you'll notice here is there's a range of sectors with uh, not much overlap, and uh, which is great. And uh, while the companies are expected to be held for five years or so, some, such as Bellway and RWS, among the 19 shares that have been held for a decade or longer. You know, such low turnover is what you'd expect if you run your winners. And it shows a level of patience that I can really only aspire to. Um, at the other end of the scale, Watch of Switzerland is in the portfolio because the team use IPOs as part of their idea generation process, uh, along with broker research and recommendations. And this has brought on board other names such as Moonpig and uh, Bytes, which are names familiar to us. And it kind of indicates that the team is very selective about their IPOs, uh, which is a good thing. Now, HSL was incorporated in 1887, so, you know, there's quite a track record here, although fund manager uh, Neil Herman uh, has only managed the trust for just over 19 years. Um, and over this period, the trust has delivered NAV and share price annualized returns of around 14.3% and 17.5% respectively, which is very respectable, and has driven growth to just over 1 billion of assets. Which is, you know, uh, it's quite a, a large investment trust. And due to the size, the management fee is just 0.35% of net assets with an ongoing charge trigger of around 0.42%. And this is materially lower than the sector unweighted uh, average of about 1.07%. And uh, finally, the bonus, of course, is the shares on a 9.7% discount to the NAV. And in recent times, the discount has mainly been sat in the 5 to 10% range after a considerable narrowing in uh, recent years. I mean, the five-year historic median discount is around 10.6%. So the shares are attractively valued at the current level, um, given the solid underlying portfolio. So I've run out of time, but if you'd like to ask a question around gearing or the dividend, then feel free. Thank you. Damien, thank you very much indeed. And we've got a few questions. Is HSL permitted to hold unquoted companies? No, I don't believe so. And why would you choose this smaller company trust rather than Aberdeen or Throgmorton? Well, it's interesting because, you know, if you look at Throgmorton, that's on a pretty decent premium to the net assets. So you're effectively paying more for the underlying companies than you could actually buy them for in the stock market. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that uh, Throgmorton has you know, done, done very well in recent times. But I, I personally feel I'd rather buy at a discount a decent trust as opposed to one at a premium um, because, you know, you're going to get reversion to mean in the long term. And also, you know, if you look at the performance of HSL, over 19 years when uh, Neil Herman's been running it, to have a, a return of somewhere 15, 16, 17% per annum is something I'd be very happy with. Um, so that's why I've gone with HSL. Tremendous, thank you. Um, this might be duplication, um, but I will ask it anyway. There are 24 investment trusts in this space. 12 have a superior three-year track record. So why do you go for this rather than others that have got a better track record? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because 
you, you you know as you say a, a, a three years you know I guess a decent amount of time but it's not a very long period of time and I guess one of the the reasons why I want to put some of my money into investment trust I'm looking for a fairly safe pair of hands yeah and if I can find a manager such as Neil who's been running it for 19 years and very successfully for 19 years I think in 17 of the 19 years it's beaten their their benchmark um then I I feel I should go with a trust that's got a longer track record and something that I, I feel that's navigated a number of different uh, stock market conditions as opposed to just looking at the, the very recent times when a growth-orientated trust would have done very well. Aren't we better off picking 10 stocks with a Stockopedia rank of 90 plus and then having a ranking of 60 for the whole fund? There, yes, I mean, there's no doubt that... Um, on a numbers basis, um, you know, picking some high stock rank stocks um, is, you know, is the way to go. But that's not really what I'm trying to achieve by going with investment trust, I think. I think what I want with a trust is to reduce some of my volatility, have some of my funds in, a, in less volatile assets. Yeah. Whereas 10 companies, 20 companies, even 30 companies, buying them individually, you're going to get a lot of volatility, even with high stock rank companies. Um, you know, there's, there's no way to get around it. Whereas here, I've got a part of a fund which has over 100 holdings. And th- that just isn't going to be as volatile um, as you know a portfolio of 10 or 20 shares. And so I'm not saying put all, all my money into a trust, but I think it has a place in the portfolio. Tremendous. Thank you very much. And that's the end of questions. So back to you. Thanks very much, Damien. No, thank you, Tamsin. Now, I'm pleased to say we have uh, Rebecca Stewart back again. And she's going to be presenting phrases. So take it away, Reb. Thank you. Good evening. I have a prop. Phrases is a Marmite chair, in my opinion. Many seem to hate it or love to hate it. And I'm here to suggest why you shouldn't. As investors, we're often told to look for companies with significant skin in the game for management. And here we have a FTSE 250 company which is a 3.8 billion market cap in which the employees and CEO own almost 70%. The CEO is Mike Ashley and he's got a 65% stake and the staff, the employees hold 3.23%. And so to the numbers. As we all know, a number is only as good as what's behind it. And Fraser's interims back in December showed 186 million pound profit pre-tax, of which their branded division accounted for 80 million. So we're looking at 350 million pounds profit pre-tax for the full year. And do bear in mind, if you're looking at last year's figures, they took a huge 317 million pound property related impairment above the line. And that resulted in them reporting a full year loss for the year. And for those who like their accounts, Mike runs this business as if it was all his own, and you will find no intangibles in last year's results, which I think is quite impressive. Fraser's is definitely a business in transition. There's a saying that the real skill for management is to know what they can't do. And Mike Ashley knows that despite his success with Sports Direct, and it is considerable, he can't sell top flight brands like Gucci, Burberry and Hermes. So he's promoting his son-in-law, Michael Murray, to be CEO from May this year, as he can. 
Young Michael has been responsible for developing the Flannels Premium Lifestyle Shops, which have rapidly grown to 41 stores throughout the UK. And it has very ambitious targets. Flannels plans to reach £2 billion worth of turnover by the end of financial year 2026. And I'll end with a prediction. My prediction is that Fraser's will go over the top of JD Sports in the future. The share price will hit £15. Uh, it's currently £7.63.5. Its profit will hit seven to £800 million pre-tax, million pounds, and at which point they'll go in to the FTSE 100. And the main reason for that is that JD can't sell premium brands like Burberry, Gucci and Hermes, whereas Flannels can. And to demonstrate, Fraser's Group is currently the third largest seller of Hermes in the UK. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Reb. A very good pitch. Um, do you really think that Mike's son-in-law is the best CEO to take the business forward and potentially make £100 million? Well, he certainly delivered so far. So you'd have to say that his track record so far is good. Let's find out. He's incentivized very well to do so. And do you think Mike Ashley has got too much skin in the game? It's his train set. <laughs> and We're are you con- the ride. Are you concerned <laughs> with the level of debt? No, it's tiny in comparison to the market cap. It was less than 300 million at the last financial year end report. It's over three billion pounds in market cap. It's tiny comparatively. Historically, Fraser's had significant corporate governance issues. Has corporate governance improved? And what significant corporate governance issues remain? It has significantly improved. I would say they now have a representative of their staff on their board. Their board of directors has good diversity, and I believe one of their female directors has recently resigned, but I hope they would replace it her with a suitably uh, diverse exec in the future. They report on some very interesting ESG KPIs. For example, one of their KPIs is the volume of recycling that they have as a proportion of their total packaging, which I think is impressive as it's been improving every year. Thank you. And are you not concerned that should Mike Ashley decide to take the company private, given his majority holding, he could vote this through at an advantageous price? Yes, he could. It is always going to be a risk, but they are regulated. They are FTSE 250. He has ambitions, I would say, to hit the FTSE 100. And I suspect he would like to overtake JD Sports. To do that, he needs to stay listed. And how long do you think we have to wait for the £15 per per share price? Well, the first um, target is £10, which is the point at which the Fearless 1000 scheme for staff kicks in, at which 1,000 staff receive up to £10 million for the top 10, and that's voted for by colleagues. The second price point to look for is then £12, at which the CFO receives bonus shares, And as you know, the third price is £15, at which young Michael receives a significant amount of shares when the target is hit for 30 consecutive trading days. Thank you. And Fraser's was struggling as a label before with increasing issues on the high street. Can it really come back? It's got ambitious growth plans. 
I was just reading, I've been reading the financial reports for the last two years at the weekend because I really know how to live. And they've got some ambitious plans, as you could hear about Sanol's growth. Um, they're also looking at building further partnerships with Nike and Burberry. They've got digital plans with the huge development at Shirebrook and automation, um, food and beverage concepts and beauty concepts. I think they'd give it a good go. Tremendous. Thank you very much. We've got loads more questions, but we've run out of time. Damien, back to you. Thank you, Rebecca. That was great. I've always been a bit wary of uh, phrases uh, since Mike Ashley is, uh, still maintains uh, lobster-like control over the company. But anyway, we, uh, we now move on to Martin Flitton, who's going to talk about uh, Get Busy. Where you go, Martin? Hey, so uh, Get Busy. It's a global-focused software-as-a-service business used by accountants and other professional financial service players, where it provides secure documentation management and storage services. Although a quick look at the face numbers for this business, as you can see from Stockopedia, paints a picture of a loss, delve deeper and you'll find a core underlying profitable business that has been actively supporting the expansion and growth of other arms within the group. So that's Virtual Cabinet, which is both profitable and cash generative, and very well established. Now, alongside this sits Smart Vault, which having seen significant investment is now growing well and seems very close to an inflection point. This could result in a step change to the overall group performance and thus profitability in the next few years. Now, the most striking thing supporting the investment case is the exceptional level of recurring revenue, which stands at circa 93% of the total revenue and has been increasing impressively. That is both attractive and comforting, and the company is now growing across the board, particularly within Smart Bolt. Given the high level of recurring revenue, also the growth prospects, and virtually no churn, the current market of 34 million related to peers and the wider industry looks extremely modest. Overall, the company has 70,000 users of its software, who in turn serve over a million of their clients. And the technology products, which importantly are in-house developed, are very sticky. Contracts for both Virtual Cabinet and Smart Vault typically run for six to 10 years. So that provides very good visibility. Key to the story though, is the area in which it is operating in. This is seeing ongoing growth because it's across the digital world and where the advent of hybrid working model absolutely plays to its strengths. Increased efficiency, productivity, and high levels of security are key USPs for the business, so it's certainly well-placed for the further and ongoing growth. Although UK-based business accounts for 50%, so too does the US, which is comfortably the fastest-growing territory for the company. There is also, importantly, a third aspect of the business, namely the Get Busy app which has seen heavy investment in recent years, but which has taken longer to bring to the market than first envisaged. This provides real-life chat, e-signature provision, et cetera, et cetera. The good news here is that it's operational and scaling up, being focused on the enterprise resource planning sector, which is extremely large. There are now around 600 paying users of this product, up from 300 last summer, and the company now hopes to capitalize on a cemented partnership with NetSuite, which has 24,000 enterprise customers globally. In a recent broker note, it was noted that this product could penetrate 
If it could penetrate, say, 5% of NetSuite's customer base, it could in turn deliver some 14 million of annual revenue to the Get Busy group and prove transformational. There have also been a couple of small bolt-on buys recently, but management believe that there is ample scope for significant organic growth. There is net cash on the balance sheet. The company is due to deliver a trading update anytime, and if it follows the recent trend, this should further underpin the story. And I'm done inside the three minutes. Martin, thanks very much indeed. So why is the bankruptcy risk so high on the Stockopedia report? I think it's um, purely down to the fact that um, it's historically lost making. I think it's important to look at that uh, core business that I think at the last halfway stage made um, operating profit of about two million. Um, I think going forward, uh, I mean, we, we've got a net cash position of about two million now. That's set to start scaling up. And I think as the revenue continues to build from the two key key arms, um, virtual cabinet, uh, I, ju I just feel that, um, that that's probably unwarranted and unfair. How can it be worth twice sales when it's still bleeding cash? Well, what, the, the way I value, I mean, there are various ways of um, valuing a, a software company. But, I mean, one of the, the, the key points for me is valuing a company on recurring revenue. And, I mean, there are various opinions on that. But I think it's fair to say that if you look at um, a company on three to four times recurring value, um, that alone suggests to me that uh, the business is is undervalued. And I think if it was to attract a predator, I think it would um, it would probably go for substantially higher than where it is now. So SmartVault won't hit profits for several years as they'll invest all all the excess cash into growth. When do you think that it will start being cash generative? Well, I, I actually, I mean, the um, the core business was, was ca cash generative in 2020. Um, I actually think that uh, it would actually be good to hear from the company in their next update whether they're trading ahead of expectations, something that they, they actually failed to say in previous updates or whether it was purely in line. But I actually think that the scale of the growth and the way uh, the, the, the two core businesses uh, you know, sort of progressing. I think that could come a lot earlier. So I'm I'm looking for um, real tangible progress, probably in the next two years. Um, also, the the big unknown is the the get get busy product, which ha I, I said you know in my pitch that it's taken a lot longer to get where it needs to be, uh, but that's got huge potential, and the fact that it's you know sort of doubled its users uh, from the summer sort of bodes well, I would say. It looks like they'll need to raise fresh capital to get it through to profitability. How supportive do you think institutions will be will be of another raise? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, it's something that I, I um, mentioned to the company. Uh, they believe that um, certainly they wouldn't raise at the current level, but they believe that um, there is enough out there uh, organically for them to grow um, and you've seen they've done a couple of very small acquisitions which are very early stage but they can 
take that technology and implement it into what they've got. Uh, but um, I, I, I would believe, or I'm led to believe, that should they should they you know go down the route further down the line of doing a raise, which I suspect would be at a higher level uh, for a, a larger acquisition, then one would expect that to be be supported. Martin, many thanks indeed. We've run out of time. Loads more questions, but we've run out of time. Back to you, Damien. Cool. No, thank you, uh, Martin. That was excellent. Um, I mean, I, I had thought we'd get busy, that if anything was going to drive to profitability, it'd be the pandemic, but that doesn't appear to be the case. Although I am impressed by the fact that uh, management haven't issued shares uh, like confetti, uh, which kind of indicates the business is cash generative, um, even though it isn't quite yet profitable. Uh, and anyway, now we go on to Dave Sullivan, who's going to talk about Shield Therapeutics. Away you go, Dave. Good evening, everyone. So the company that I'm pitching this evening, as Damien said, Shield Therapeutics, ticker is STX. Stockopedia categorises the company as a highly speculative small cap sucker stock. Market cap is around 90 million, with the shares trading around the 40 to 42 pence mark. And the price target from FinCap is 250 pence. That's based on a risk-adjusted net present value. Price target from Hardman is 281 pence, based on the future discounted cash flow model. So this gives a 500%-ish upside potential if the company can execute as expected. It should be noted that Acrofer and Ferrocru are basically the, the same products, just under different names, and they trade in different parts of the world. The product is described as a novel treatment for adults suffering from iron deficiency with or without anemia and is approved by the FDA for use in the US. It is also licensed in the UK, EU and Australia. A fun fact, anemia affects 33% of the world's population and about half of the cases are due to iron deficiency. Iron deficiency anemia is prevalent in several pathological disorders, noticeably chronic kidney disease, chronic heart failure, cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, amongst others. In short, it, it is a global problem. The product is pitched between uh, ferrous sulfate tablets, which is usually the first line of treatment for iron deficiency. These are more often than not poorly tolerated by patients due to poor absorption, absorption rates. The next stage traditionally is then onto a transfusion of iron, which is conducted intravenously usually in a hospital setting, and it's expensive and time-consuming. So basically the product works by ensuring that the iron is not released once it's in the stomach, but when it reaches, reaches the large bowel, meaning it is much better tolerated and the iron is absorbed by the body in a much more effective way. The primary focus of the company is currently commercialising Acrofer in the US, where it's going to be uh, following licensing partnership uh, where it's going alone because the licensing partnerships that it was in negotiations to complete did not come to fruition. In my view, it is here where the potential for the shares to re-rate if the execution is well received and the next few courses will be pivotal in demonstrating whether the plan has come to fruition or not. There are also licensed deals with large farmers who commercialise the product in their respective territories. These being Norgene in UK, EU, Australia and New Zealand, Ask Farmer, that deals with China, Taiwan, Hong Kong and Macau, Korea Farmer, obviously in Korea, and recently announced Kai Farmer, which is in Canada. Previous management have been replaced by candidates who seem to understand the US market better and possibly due to the management presiding over a deeply discounted capital raise to fund the company taking the US opportunity without 
partner. Judging by recent news, things seem to be taking shape. On the 16th of December, the company announced that uh, the US launch of Aquifer in July 2021, one of the company's key focus points was to establish payer coverage. Shield has made substantial progress successfully securing payer coverage with several large pharmacy benefit managers, including Express, Express Scripts and Optum. These are two of the big three providing the company with access to approximately 40 million commercial patients. These contacts and contracts result in Aquifer being placed on formulary and are effective immediately. The CEO noted that we've made significant pro- progress over the last few months in the US by securing the reimbursement for Aquifer among several large farming benefit managers. Gaining coverage of Aquifer among payers is a critical step for adoption. Dave, you're well over time. Coverage. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I don't know whether you just want um, to finish. Yes. I mean, um, how much more have you got to say? Uh, three lines. Okay. Um, so basically, the, the shares hit a low of around 28p. They jumped around 30% on the day of that announcement. Um, and I think there's more positive news to come. Um, but I'll hand over the questions. Tremendous. Thank you very much. Um, if Shield doesn't execute well in the States, what's their plan B? Will they need a fundraise if sales don't gain traction in the States? Well, I, I, I mean, to me, it seems that things are going quite well um, because that, that's what they decided to do. They, they had uh, conversations with two partners in the US. None of those come, came to fruition. And that's when they did do a fundraise. It was at a 43.7% discount. Um, at 30p, they raised 28 million. Um, so I, I think, as I alluded to, they've taken on a CEO who's got a background in uh, you know, uh, iron deficiency and the CFO has also joined. They've got quite broad experience in America as well. So I, I, I think I think they will crack it. I, I don't think things stand as a plan B, but they've got about, I've said probably we'll, we'll see more full-year results, but they've probably got around about 20, 20 million, 24 million of net cash on hand so far. So will they all need a fundraise? I don't think so, not at the moment. Are they a one-product company? No, the, the, there are some uh, additional products, but they've not got license uh, for use. They're also doing some studies into um, the, how, how well the, their product performs in children. And a lot of children have got iron deficiency. So but they, they're currently doing... Uh, studies in, into that at the moment. So predominantly at the moment, yes, but there are a few other things in uh, in the background, but I didn't really want to talk about those because they're not licensed. And why have European sales been so slow to grow, given the stated advantages of the product? Yeah, it's, I think it's a, it's a difficult one. And I think from the research that I've done, there's been quite a lot of uh, investors that aren't particularly happy um, with how well they've grown in Europe. Um, I think at the interims, I think I'm right in saying that they've grown by 50% uh, in, in the half year. Obviously, we'll, we'll see how they've done uh, in, in the, the next six months when, uh, when, when the company updates. But Greg Madison was asked specifically that question. He thought 50% was quite good. I, I think there are regions where they need to push it a little bit more. But as we've seen with companies like Tristel, um, some of the distributors have not done a, a, a very good job. 
Um, so time will tell, I think, with that one. I think we've got to give uh, Norgene a little bit more time and then, you know, take a view. And what's your price target over a two- and five-year time horizon? Well, the, the price target, I would, I would say, somewhere between two and three pounds. You know, realistically, if, if, if they can execute in America, I think if you read the, the FinCap research, which is freely available, as is the Hardman research, you know, the, the, the products could be transformational for a lot of people. Uh, they seem to be progressing quite well um, in, in the US. So I don't see a reason why they, they can't hit that, that target. You know, I'd arguably, they would make a, a decent acquisition um, because it, it it's, a, it's a product. As I said, you've, you've got 33% of the population will suffer with, with, with this condition at some point in their lives. Uh, and this product can make a real difference to a lot of people, particularly if you've got other areas, for example, India, Japan, Middle East, South America, all areas that they've not quite, not got licenses for just yet. Um, I think because they're focusing on America, but they've recently announced um, a contract uh, license agreement with um, Kai Palmer um, in Canada. So I think it's something they're working on. Tremendous, Dave. Thank you very much indeed. Loads more questions, but we've run out of time. Damien, back to you. Cool. No, thank you, Dave. That was very informative. I mean, in general, pharma is a sector I avoid because I've, I've got no insight there and it often feels, feels the odds are stacked against uh, success. But I mean, if Shield can beat these odds, then yeah, I mean, the, the de- currently depressed share price does offer a great opportunity. Anyway, next up, we have Robert Corden, who's going to talk about Jade Road Investments. Jade Road Investments, Jade, quoted on the London, London AIM market, is a private equity company. Portfolio is very, very concentrated. My target is the share price to at least double, possibly treble over the next year, and from there to offer an attractive above average return of about 20% prime compound. The current fund managers were appointed in 2017. There was a three-stage uh, strategy. The first was to restructure and reorganize the legacy portfolio. This is now being completed. In fact, the company did raise a small amount of equity and loan capital earlier and has made some small uh, investments outside the original legacy portfolio. Phase two is to fully or partially realize those assets, which is now underway. Phase three is to reinvest those in unquoted small companies in Asia, primarily in technology, healthcare, and fintech. Um, in, in the short term, the investments kept about £5 million per, per investment, and they're expected to be income generated and to generate sufficient income to earn profits and pay dividends. So where are we now? Is that 30th of June, the reorganization was complete the losses had been reduced to a very low level, $200,000 in the first half of the year. The company reports in dollars. At that time, growth assets were $114 million and the net assets were $106 million. There are 115 million shares outstanding and at $1.36, the NAV in sterling was 65 pence. However, there's been a big problem with a major holder. Fuck Lamb Moon. I've got these... Translated correct, I mean, uh, not uh, said correctly, please forgive me. This is a holding company for a group, this was a holding company for a group of Michelin record 
restaurants in, in Hong Kong, and which the company holds a convertible bond with a carrying value of almost 30 million, or 27% of net assets. The company stated in December it had become aware that Footlong was no longer the controlling shareholder in the restaurants. The company is taking action under its bond deed, uh, and there may be some recovery, but in the meantime, it is prudent to assume a full provision against that, against that investment. That's you know, almost 30 million. Adjusted for that NAV, uh, the NAV falls to 49 pence per share. At that time, there may be a very, the, the area, there may be a very small decline as the losses may have increased to about a million a year, a million dollars a year, not, um, so not huge. Huh? The legacy portfolio is now substantially future metal holdings, which accounts for 66% of adjusted NAV. Uh, FMH is the largest manganese, magnesium dolomite quarry in Shanxi problem in China. The crucial factor is, can they realize the value of future metal holdings? If they do, that will, one, make the current asset value reasonable, reasonably firm, and secondly, allow them to, to uh, go into the new investments, which would generate returns of 15% per annum, and uh, I think that the discount will narrow from the current 80%, first to 50, and then subsequently from 50 to 30 to give you a 20% per annum return. Tremendous. Thank you very much indeed. So the first question here, what gives you confidence that management have a handle on the portfolio and that this isn't just a basket case? Well, they turned around future, future metal. Um, they went from nothing to getting, a comp- uh, you know, to getting, getting it so it's now profitable. To exit, they're going to need to sell it to somebody who's got bigger, bigger profits. I have known the chairman, no I haven't, I've been acquainted with the chairman for maybe 20 years and I don't think he would lie to me. Thank you. And haven't the Chinese government stopped the smelters which use the dolomite? Dolomite is not for smelting. The dolomite is for road building. The magnesium is for uh, smelting to put into into cars, etc. It makes bumpers shiny, doesn't it? And it doesn't look so good on Stockopedia. Why do you think? I, I think, I think it looks actually probably probably horrific. It does. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you it's think been, it looks so bad, and yet it's such a good investment idea? It's been absolutely disastrous. The crucial point is: can they sell or realise some of future metal? at carrying value. My understanding is that the carrying value is below appraised value. And if you look at the website, the competent person's report is on the website. So you can look at it to see whether or not you believe the company. If it is correct, these shares are the wrong price. If it's not correct, I'm a stupid fool. And why do you think it might not be correct? What what would be the risk factors? I mean, the risk factor is that nobody wants to invest in in uh, in the quarrying products or manganese in in in, in, uh, in China. I would have thought it's probable. 
but I don't know. The company was pretty certain that they could find a buyer. Now, I know that exiting private equity is very long term. My son-in-law's company, it took nine months to sell it when it, had, when it was really cash generating and had the most amazing projects in front of it. So here we are. I actually, his, his company uh, had a 350 million pound project and because of the gas prices, that would be paid off in seven months. So, I mean, you know, that was a real steal, right? But it took nine months to sell it. We're at the end of time now, but thank you very much indeed. And uh, we've got a, actually, we haven't, you've got through all the questions. So, Damien, back to you. Cool. No, thank you, Robert. I mean, that was a brave pick for sure. Um, I mean, I mentioned I like investment trusts, but, you know, the exposure and concentration here is, is way outside my comfort zone. Still, I mean, if the NAV is accurate and the assets are legally owned because we're talking about China here, this could be one hell of an opportunity. So, yeah, who knows? So coming up next, we have Vivek Sharma, who's going to give you something slightly uh, more familiar, which is Premier Foods. Where you go, Vivek? So Premier Foods, they manufacture and sell a number of grocery ingredients and sweet treats. A number of brands that are market leaders in the UK. Things like Bisto, Batchelors, Oxo, Mr. Kipling, Nissan and Cadbury's. Products are defensive in nature, affordable treats with high brand loyalty due to habit-forming, low-value repeat purchases. I also feel such products command more brand loyalty. I think people are more fussy about what they put in their mouths versus down their toilet, bleach is bleach, domestos or otherwise. For any business uh, investment to be successful, I think one of three things needs to happen. Revenue growth, margin expansion, or multiple expansion. Revenue growth. I'm relying on international expansion here. Currently, it's less than 10% revenues, but following a successful trial of Mr. Kipling, they're going national in Canada and apl- applying the same strategy in the US. Starbucks has just launched in Spain and Germany, and sales are up 150% in two years. MA is a possibility. Uh, the Unilever food business may well be on the block. And new products and healthy extension of existing products. Reduce SOP Bisto, for example. Margin expansion. Well, there's the basic operating leverage from sales growth, but brands becoming a high proportion of total revenues that have a brand-led growth strategy. EBIT margins increased 100 basis points from half one 2020 to half one 22. Also, a reduced debt burden. Interest costs are expected to halve versus 2020, from 45% of EBIT to 19%, taking interest cover from two times to six times. Multiple expansion. I think reduced debt ratios, higher interest cover, higher margin, diversification of the business internationally, and the pension scheme dilution should all result in a higher quality, lower risk business, and that should drive multiple expansion. Uh, in terms of my return estimates, but without any multiple expansion based on current forecasts for debt and pension reduction, conservatively, I see a 13% return to equity holders based on April 23 EBITDA, and 36% based on 24 EBITDA before dividends. These forecasts are not aggressive. Revenue growth in 23 and 24 each year is less than 2.5%, which seems quite light given the levels of inflation we see. Adjusting for the range of deficit recovery payments, I think 2024 EPS estimates are going to be in the 8.5 to 10p range. And given the brand quality and the much improved balance sheet, I think a 13 to 15 times earnings multiple is fair and would still leave that at discounted peers. Why might the share price move? Well, 
it's not quite a bowl, but if you look at a 10-year chart, it looks a little bit like a noodle soup bowl. And it's been trending up since. It's coming up against multi-year resistance, which if breaks that should attract traders. Positive trading updates could be a catalyst. UK inflation data and supermarket results bode well to Premier Foods results. Return to the dividend register at 1% yield, but growing at 33% a year. As that yield improves, it may attract income investors. Missing foods appear on the shareholder register, a very large Japanese food business, and they have a 20% shareholding. They may be potential acquires. Uh, so we're just going to run on to the risk very quickly. Pension and trying your valuation up on 31st of March 2021. Uh, should reduce the pension liability from 320 to 180 million, but there's a lot of uncertainty around that. Growth thus far has been pedestrian and don't know how much was pandemic-led demand versus how much is genuine growth. But I think with um, the stronger balance sheet, I think they're able to invest in the brands. Uh, so put all these things together. You should hopefully have a profitable investment and reading the reports of watering. Thank you very much indeed. Um, is cost inflation a worry with the inability to raise prices on these types of products? Um, so I think cost inflation is a worry across the board. Uh, I'm not convinced that there isn't the ability to raise prices on these products. Um, let's say they are habit forming repeat purchases, they're low value. Um, in the event of a consumer squeeze, I think you are more likely to buy products from the grocery store, eat at home. Um, so, yeah, I personally, I think the strength of the brand's the market position. I don't think the risk is there on the price side. If anything, I'd say the risk is more around consumer taste. So whether gravy or sweets and stuff, war on sugar, war on obesity, war on insert your pause. I'd be more concerned about that than the price power, pricing power. Thank you. And why is the bankruptcy risk at distress? Uh, I think that's because it's, um, to be honest, I think that's Stockopedia. Uh, they've entered into a debt uh, refinance agreement, so which has actually reduced their interest costs by a half versus what they paid in 2020-2021 year end. Uh, so I think that's basically one reason. So I imagine that will just disappear. Uh, other things that will drive the bankruptcy risk, they don't have the healthiest balance sheet. It is very much reliable on transformation of the balance sheet and reliability being a big driver of that because that could reduce your annual recovery payments from 40 million down to 17 million in the best case and 30 million in a less best case. Thank you. And this person comments that they've held the share for some time and the share price doesn't really move. How realistic is the growth you suggest? And what's your target price over two and five year time horizon? Um, so, so over the two year time horizon, I can see something between the 130 to 150p range where dividends accruing. Uh, I don't particularly invest on based on target prices. As I said, I think this business is going through some of a transformation. I think the balance, strengthening the balance sheet enables management to invest in the business. I think that makes a much higher quality business, uh, your cons- classic consumer defensive type stock and international. And under that scenario, I'd be willing to hold it over the long term. If international is kicking off, I think it turns into a compounder. 
Um, yeah, like I said, for me, the big risk is to what extent was 2021 an aberration of supply chains and panics and um, whether that will sustain itself. And obviously the pension creates a lot of uncertainty around where it finally ends up. Broker targets, I think, 125p, which is as good a number as any other, I guess. Vivek, thank you very much indeed. More questions, but we've run out of time. Thanks very much. Damien, back to you. Cool. No, thanks, Vivek. Um, it's interesting <laughs> you mentioned holding holding for the long term because, uh, yeah, I mean, the pandemic has clearly been beneficial to Premier, um, but the shares are hardly an advert for buy and hold investing, given that the price is pretty much where it was in the depths of the uh, financial crisis. It's so, different yeah. this time. It's different this time. <laughs> it's going, it better be different this time. Um, they can't, but maybe they, they can't be many people holding from back then. New management team. New management team. <laughs> well, I wish them all the best. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, now we have Michael. He's going to talk about Bango. So away you go, Michael. Um, hello, everyone. Um, yeah, I'm going to talk about Bango, ticker code BGO, market cap 141 uh, million. I chose Bango as I think there are some interesting developments which the market has not fully appreciated. What does Bango do? Bango enables customers to make payments via their mobile phone. It charges a small fraction of the transaction value called end user spend, which has grown by 52% CAGR over the last five years. The costs of the platform are relatively stable and the gross margin is 95%. Revenue now exceeds costs, so Bango is generating cash and can fund its own growth. Customers include Google, Amazon Prime, Netflix, Microsoft, Xbox, many more, and more are joining all the time. It differentiates itself from competitors as it's been developing two new high-growth revenue streams that sit on top of the payments platform. All three can grow very quickly and feed each other. First is Bango Marketplace, where billions of dollars of payment data are analyzed and converted into anonymized GDPR-compliant audiences. So Bango creates anonymized segments of data for customers who actually pay. This, they call this purchase behavior targeting, which is attractive to app developers. Bango charges 7 to 10% of the app developers' marketing spend. So Google markets dependent on what people search for, Facebook on what people like, Bango what people buy. Marketplace grew 10 times in 2021 and has already uh, has six developers and annual spend over $100,000. Many more are likely to follow. Marketplace enjoys good tailwinds, particularly the loss of Apple's IDFA tracking data, which has resulted in an 80% reduction in available data. The second high growth re revenue stream is a bundling and resale platform, which is starting to deliver a stream of recurring stick and sticky revenues. Bangor has targeted telecoms whose customers can buy subscriptions such as Amazon Prime, Netflix, and so on. Once on board, they're likely to stay and, be, and can be offered other services. Five telecoms companies have signed up so far, including BT and Verizon, the largest carrier in the US with 140 million customers. These five are expected to deliver revenues of $7 million by 2023. 30 telecoms companies have been targeted. So what is the bear case? Bango now needs to deliver and it might not manage that. Some question the use of the data, but audiences are anonymized and Bango does not sell any data, only the use of the data on recognized platforms like Facebook and TikTok. Cyber tackle platform malfunction, I've not heard of this to date. Ray Anderson, executive chair, says his greatest fear is the company is acquired before it really starts to deliver. 
In conclusion, Bango is now profitable and generating cash, is funding its own growth and has created two new fast, high growth, high margin revenue streams. Bango is not the cheapest share, but the its potential for its fast growth to accelerate and its metrics are improving all the time. Full year 21 update showed revenue growth of 32% re, growth, growth and a growing cash pile. Bango say they are on a journey from tens of thousands of dollars in revenue to hundreds of thousands. Thank you. Michael, thank you very much indeed. Um, is the valuation overinflated, particularly given growing inflationary pressures and the tech correction? Um, I think it really just depends on how, um, if, if, if Bango continue to deliver revenue growth like this, 30% this year, 70% last year, I think that um, the market won't mind um, if there's um, if the economic environment, I think it'll be fine. If not, um, it won't do well, but it wouldn't anyway. And what's its USP compared to its competitors? So I don't think any of its competitors have the platform and then on top these two additional um, revenue streams of the data monetization and the platform and resale bundling platform. And all of these, these three all feed into each other, providing more and more revenue, data payments and customers and make the whole environment more attractive to more clients. It seems like a pretty good virtuous circle to me. Thank you. And what's the marketing spend and the customer acquisition cost now and what they think it will be in the future? I do not have those exact figures, but they are funding all of the the, the sales and, and marketing growth from the cash that they are um, throwing off um, and it, so that they don't need to uh, look for any more cash. Thank you. And the share price hasn't really moved for the last year. What will be the catalyst for a re-rating? Well, I think if Bango starts to show that either of these two new revenue streams are starting to bear considerable fruit, I think it will be uh, a major catalyst. Thank you. And the Korean company NHN Corporation has been increasing its percentage of ownership of Bango. Do you think they could buy Bango? I'm sure they could. They've got enough money, but whether they would do it, I'm not so sure. I think they like Bango. They work together with Bango in partnership. Um, they help Bango um, with their tech. So I, I think they just really, I think this works quite well for them. Um, I'm not sure that that would certainly, it's something they're looking to do at the moment anyway. And who are their main competitors? Well, there are various other payments platforms, but like I said, I don't think any other company has these three different revenue streams all feeding into each other. And that, you know, the, the, the payments platform has already demonstrated exponential growth and the other two revenue streams have the potential to do um, the same and have started to produce revenue already. Michael, thank you very much indeed. We do have a few more questions, but we've run out of time. Damien, back to you. Thank you. Cool. No, thank you very much, Michael. Um, the first question kind of preempted my major concerns, which is, yeah, it's not it's not being sold cheap, the growth on offer um, in the current market. But yeah, as you say, if they deliver that, the growth that's expected of them, then yeah, maybe no one of mind really. Um, certainly, you know, profitability should come through operational gearing if they can raise that top line. Um, given their platform. So, yeah, very interesting. Thank you. Thank you.
Right. And next we have James Tapp, who's going to talk to us about time finance. So here you go, James. Time finance I came across because I have a portfolio evenly weighted with recovery plays and uh, speculative uh, investments. I was looking for more recovery plays, uh, particularly in the traditional vein, which would be a low PE and a, uh, a low price to net asset value and little or no debt and time finance kept popping up on my screens. Um, it has a PE ratio, according to Stockopedia, of 6.3, and uh, it has cash. Quite interestingly, it does pass a screen, and that is Walter Schloss's new lows screen. Uh, that screen is um, based on uh, Walter Schloss, who was a, a value investing uh, disciple and uh, a, f a following of a uh, follower of Benjamin Graham. Now, what's interesting here is that Warren Buffett said that Walter continues to outperform managers who work in temples filled with paintings, staff and computers. And he accomplishes this feat by rummaging around the cigar butts on the floor of capitalism. Well, I prefer to think of this as panning for gold. But um, Stockopedia itself tells me that um, it's quite a... Uh, um, a, a high rated company. The quality rating is 82. The value is 94 and the stock rank is also 94. Now, if you look back at the figures um, on uh, looking at the quality of the company, you can see that from 2016 onwards, it has uh, grown through 17, 18 and 19 in revenue. And it came a little bit unstuck on 2019. You can see on the chart here in June 2019, there was a bit of a drop. That was a 20% drop from 42p, I think, down to um, uh, 32.25. And that was on uh, a warning that the growth may not be as uh, achieved, achieved the forecast that the company uh, were uh, talking about, or indeed researchers were suggesting it might be. So. <clears throat> there was uh, growth expected, uh, but they also said in that trading uh, statement that the financial year ending 31st of May 2020 will be one of investment and consolidation. So people were thinking that they were going to um, uh, lose money on that, so not produce a profit. So COVID then hit in 2020. I haven't said that AIM, they're an AIM stock. I haven't said that they used to be called 1PM. I haven't said that they uh, lend to 20,000 SMEs. They do asset finance. They do invoice financing. They do loans. And those are all on their own book. And they do vehicle finance, which they broker out. Sen uh, Senkos uh, give them a target price of 54p. They're currently 25.25. And equity development suggests a core value of 50p. Um, their competition is mostly regular banks and regular banks just like equals they do not uh, they do not uh, gear then there's not a core business now for um, the banks this uh, loan market in the same way that equals uh, have the FX business that they do because the banks just don't uh, aren't interested and aren't geared up to the personal service that people require Tremendous, James. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Time Finance brought in a new CEO who cut the dividend after it had already been declared. I've only seen this in companies with serious financial trouble. Why would the company do this? This is because of the, um, the COVID pandemic. Um, he um, deferred it, actually. It wasn't 
cut initially, it was deferred. Once they knew the lay of the land, um, they uh, did uh, not, they decided against paying it. But um, Ed Rimmer is the CEO. He joined in 2021 and he's been with the business before and also, also had 20 years with BB Financial Services. So he knows the business, but also the pandemic did affect uh, their business significantly because um, the uh, government was hugely supportive of small businesses uh, through furlough and VAT cuts and the such. So the requirement for uh, loans was uh, reduced somewhat. So yes, this is why the figures for 2020 uh, did go down quite a lot, but they're looking to boost that and concentrate on more on-book business, which is the first three asset finance, invoice finance and loans. And they're looking to double that um, business within uh let me see i've got it here somewhere uh within uh can't find it don't worry we'll move on to the next question because <laughs> we've got loads the company okay. said that they may need to raise funds to finance growth is this a concern as it would have it, it's likely it'll be done at a discount i'm not sure they are going to uh raise funds to uh for acquisitions they have been through an acquisition program from 2015 to 2018 and that's partly the reason for the lack of performance uh, in 2019 and 2020 as well because those businesses were being consolidated being integrated IT systems and salespeople being invested in and uh, that uh, affected the um, the profitability but um, they have said that they may uh, acquire again if they find the right target, but I haven't been aware that they may um, raise funds to do so. They do have eight or nine million pounds in cash. Uh, their net uh, tangible assets are 29 million currently, and their market cap is 23.4. Thank you. And December 15th looks like a profit warning. Can you explain on that? I don't read it that way. Um, I read the group has continued to experience positive trading momentum regarding lending origination of its own book. I think that's very positive. It also says that deals are in arrears. Deal, deals in arrears are at their lowest levels since the fourth quarter of 2018. So the arrears are really low. There are no deals in forbearance as a result of the pandemic. So actually, I think that's really very good going. The other thing about the uh, pandemic was that they did because of the um, they had to uh, in their accounts account for a possible impairments uh, that didn't uh, arise. So they accounted in their accounts for more than actually occurred. And the share price hasn't gone anywhere for 14 years. What's the catalyst for the change? Well, there is an interim report due tomorrow, um, so it'll either be this podcast, this this broadcast presentation, or the interim results possibly tomorrow. Uh, I'll take the credit, though. Um, I think uh, it's going to be slow growth again back into um, – they're looking to double their, as I say, double their on-book lending. They're very focused on that. Um, so uh, – and, and they have done it before. You can just see um, in, the, in the figures that they're um, – performance, the revenues, the profitability has, has grown considerably in previous years up to pandemic time. James, thank you very much indeed. Loads more questions, but we've run out of time. Damien, back thank to you. you. Cool. No, thanks, James. Um, I remember looking at 1pm a few years ago. I thought it looked pretty cheap for the value on offer. Um, but since then, it's been mentioned. It's only got cheaper, which is rather the problem with value traps. 
still, I mean, the forecasts do show some pretty punchy uh, bounce back growth and there's a fair margin of safety with the discount to book value. So yeah, who knows really? And now we move on to uh, Ben Miller, who's going to pitch Beasley for us. Away you go, Ben. Thanks, Davian. So uh, Beasley, stock ticker BEZ, listed on the FTSE 250, market cap 3.14 billion, share price 4.96 pence. Beasley are a global specialty insurance and reinsurance company, part of the Lloyds Insurance Marketplace, managing six syndicates. A bit more about the industry. The Lloyds Insurance Market is the globally recognized center of ex expertise for providing insurance solutions for specialty and complex risks. Coverage and lines of business are typically aviation, cyber, energy, marine and terrorism risks. Other peers for comparison listed on the UK stock market include Hiscox and Lancashire. So what's the investment case for global specialty insurance? Well, they underwrite a diversified portfolio book of business, both geographically and by coverage type. 2021 is expected to be a stellar year of outperformance with double digit rate rises expected across the board. And the share prices of these companies are still yet to recover to the pre-pandemic levels in spite of favorable market conditions and outlook. In terms of the insurance cycle, we're currently in a hard market following many years of rate reductions and relaxing of terms and conditions. The activity post the COVID-19 pandemic has been to tighten wordings clauses within insurance products and significant rate rises have been seen. So why specifically Beasley? Well, potentially a takeover target, lots of M&A activity in the industry could be perceived as a uh, as cheap in its peer group, uh, given the current share price. The rate rises that, that Beasley has achieved to date in 2021, as, as reported, uh, seem to be above market the market average, uh, as far as I can see. And then the third and probably most important point, specialty the specialty insurance market is ripe for technological disruption. I believe Beasley is at the forefront of innovation and digital solutions providing a competitive advantage over its peers. And just to give you a couple of examples, Beasley provides risk mitigation solutions to clients, which reduces the likelihood of claims arising in the first instance. It also launched a fully algorithmic syndicate in 2018. So with minimal uh, physical underwriters actually required, it provides a low cost model to run a, an insurance book of business. It also launched um, the first ESG syndicate at Lloyd's in October 2021. The focus here is exclusive on offering additional capacity to businesses to perform well against ESG metrics. Of course, there are risks involved. There was a change in the boardroom uh, last year, a new CEO stepping in, although I believe this is part of the long-term succession plan. It has a, li a, sorry, a large cyber book of business and therefore cyber exposure. I don't think the market is fully comfortable with this yet. And there are also generic risks associated with holding shares in this industry. So things like potential for claims volatility based on weather events, cyber attacks, terrorist incidents, all, which, all of which are fairly unpredictable. Very quickly, current share price 496. Uh, historically, it was trained in the range from 2017 to pre-COVID to between five and six pound. I expect it to get back to these levels and push beyond given the outperformance in the market, favorable market conditions and rating environment. Tremendous. Thank you very much. Um, two questions. Why do you favour Beasley over Hiscox and um, Lancashire Holdings? So if you read recent publications on Lancashire, I think their share price has been hit 
uh, in the last few months because of the um, expected claims uh, to be paid from from the recent weather events in over Q3 and Q4. In terms of Hiscox, that has has had a lot of negative associated press along the COVID-19 and not pay, paying claims. And I think that still hangs over a little bit. Thank you. And will more capital come in to capture the gains in this market? I think there's a, there's a, there's a whole host of capital coming into the insurance market. Uh, we're obviously in line with the, the rate rises seen. So, yeah, I, I would expect more to come. And it's accepted that insurers are in a premium sweet spot. How long will that last? Um, good question. No one really knows the answer. 2021 was it was a great year for rate rises. We're expecting the momentum to continue this year. But um, as a lot of people know, will know in the industry, soft markets last a lot, lot longer than hard markets. So uh, maybe maybe just at six to twelve months. Thank you. And in the longer term, is climate change a major threat to future reinsurance profitability? Yeah, I, I think I think it is. I think um, companies have to be careful about the the, the the risk that they select to actually cover. And I think we're going to see more kind of carbon scoring and things like that, which will inform premium pricing and whatnot. So yeah, I, I would expect there to be quite a big impact. And do you think the um, benefit of cyber insurance uh, can continue? It can. I think it, it, what it needs, which is what Beasley provides in part, is risk mitigation services, so cyber breach response teams, that kind of stuff, to to support its clients rather than just dealing with claims as and when they come in. How how can they mitigate those or minimise the the claims quantum of any issues arising, any claims arising? And don't you think that the momentum in insurance companies is already priced in? What differentiates Beasley? I think the differentiator, as I mentioned in the uh, in the slam, is the fact that it, it is um, pretty heavy in terms of innovation and, and technology solutions. So the, obviously the ESG syndicate, the for the algorithmic syndicate, uh, and the the risk mitigation services it provides differentiates itself from from the rest of its peers. And are you not concerned at the lack of insider share purchases? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fair challenge. Um, I think obviously an investor should always consider uh, in, in, insider dealings, if you like, and director dealings. Um, it, it, it's a fair challenge. I, I, I would say it, it's a concern, but it's not a major concern for me. And what's your target price? Um, so I, I expect it, as I say, to get back to pre-pandemic levels and push on with the ex, with the well, the planned revenue growth and planned premium income. I could see it going um, beyond six pound, which is struggled to break through before. So I, I would say six pound, six pound fifty. Over what time frame? Uh, over twelve to eighteen months. Ben, thanks very much indeed. We've run out of time, but that was very helpful. Thank you, Damien. Back to you. Cool. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, a long time ago, I made some decent returns with uh, Catalin and in Lancashire, which are both non-life insurers. Uh, but I was always concerned by the inevitability of a catastrophic year. Um, but you're right, if Beasley stay disciplined uh, while rates are hardening, they should do well. So, yeah, let's hope they do. All right. And finally, our last pitch will be Jack Bomby. Welcome back, Jack. And he's going to talk about Central NIC. Away you go, Jack. Thanks, Damien. Yeah, so this is Central, Nick. It's a tech stock with the ticker CNIC. The market cap is about £350 million there. 
After years of acquisitions, I think Central Nick is approaching something of an inflection point. The, the past few updates on the SEVR have been very strong. Um, and so it also trades at a discount to US listed peers. So I think you, you're looking at potentially a double whammy of earnings growth and an increase in the earnings multiple over time. It's got a strong business model with recurring revenues. Those revenues have actually grown at about 72% per annum over the past five years, helped by acquisitions, but quite a pace nonetheless. You've got high cash conversion in that business model, uh, regularly in excess of 100%. It's got a, a sticky customer base, and it's situated in large and growing markets with plenty of room for expansion. FY21 revenue was up 37%. That's organic growth to $410 million. And you get all this for um, 15 and a half times forecast rolling earnings. So it looks like growth at a reasonable price to me. So what does it do? CNIC, it's not the easiest of businesses to get to grips with. It's probably the only one of its type listed in the UK. So I think there's a lack of understanding around it. There are two segments here. You've got online presence, which is the the, the historic uh, business, which you know is, is still important. And then you've got online marketing now, which is a much more recent addition and offering quite exciting growth potential. So online presence is the picks and shovels of the online world, more or less. If you need an internet presence, then you need the services that CentralNet provides. There's things like web addresses, websites, software around that. Revenue is received as a subscription once a year. You're never really not going to pay it because you, you don't want to turn the switch off on your, your digital assets. There's very little churn. And yeah, customers always pay in advance to register or renew, so favorable characteristics. Online marketing is more connecting advertisers to websites with advertising space, optimizing return on investment for those advertisers using things like artificial intelligence algorithms. Might sound similar to Tremor to people that follow that. It's a huge market. Uh, the e-commerce companies made $4 trillion in revenue last year and spent $400 billion on online marketing, which was year-on-year uh, -year growth of 20%. Um, uh, and a good thing about this is it's a roll-up, but it's good at acquisitions. And probably the most interesting point here is it's going to grow. It wants to grow in line with market, but also will probably acquire. And why it's good at acquisitions is, A, the CEO has done it a few times before and they've got a strong finance team there. But B, Central Nick's market position is a big competitive advantage because it's quite high up the supply chain here. It's got a good view of lots of companies and it can see um, who, who's growing, who's doing well. It knows all these people because they're business partners. So it's often seen as a preferred partner in acquisitions, which allows it to buy at good prices and then invest for growth. Uh, so that's Central Nick. Jack, thanks very much indeed. Is debt of around four times net profit a concern? I think the, the debt, yeah, it, it is at a high point. It's done a couple of acquisitions recently and they'll be looking to pay it down. I would point to the business model there, those recurring revenues and the cash flow, the, the cash conversion. There's a, there's a lot of cash flow and it's already been paying down debt. Um, What's more, that's another good point on the acquisitions is it's a good industry for this kind of roll-up. Ben Crawford has mentioned to me before, say a media roll-up by comparison. A lot of things can go wrong there with a lot of like a key person risk and things like that if an important person walks out. 
these businesses are just very kind of reliable, dependable cash flows. It's just businesses paying in once a year to automatically renew their uh, their web assets and things like that. So dependable cash flows. Thank you. And the results always show a huge amount of adjustments. Is this a concern? And has the company overpaid on acquisitions in previous years? Yeah, so that, that contributes to the the general lack of understanding and, and the aversion. It's, it's been changing shape a lot over the past few years. And it's, it's kind of reaching its, its slightly more mature form where it's, you know, it's, it's more representative now. So that the previous results, there have been acquisitions and it's been loss making. But if you look at the cash generation, it's always cash generative. Uh, it's, it's acquired businesses and then it's done restructurings and moved people around and lots of things like that to kind of get, get its chips in, in order, like it's, it's set up, it's, it's moved all its software engineers into a hub, for example. So there's been a, a lot of that kind of stuff in the past. And now it's more in a shape where those exceptionals and things that they should reduce and you should see cleaner financial results in the future. Thank you. And it looks like they struggle to turn revenue into profit. When will this change and why? Yeah, so it's actually forecast to change this year. If, if you look at the, the stock report, it's uh, forecast to make net earnings. And it's, it's basically, as I say, it's, it's been on a, a path of acquisitions, changing shape quite a lot. But it's signaled that it's kind of reached a, a new phase now where where it's looking to focus a bit more on organic growth and, and probably keep acquiring, but but the exceptionals and, and things that reduce the profits should reduce as a proportion of the uh, enterprise. Thank you. And to what degree is their marketing proposition exposed to Google and Facebook and their pricing? What Centralnet does is it kind of sits in the middle connecting people so that what Google does with its pricing is is not central nick's problem it's it's the advertisers problem and central nick sits in the middle and, and connects the advertisers to uh people with advertising inventory uh, i i think if if you're an online business you're not going to stop advertising you you need to advertise to grow so i i think central nick is relatively well insulated from that kind of dynamic thank you and what's your target price over what time frame so I think it can, uh, if I, I said before the, the online marketing market was growing at 20% per annum, uh, Centralnik wants to grow ahead of the market. So I think you're going to get pretty, well, I, I would hope you would get pretty good earnings growth there and then scope for a slight re-rating in the multiples. If you look at uh, other stocks sort of similar to this, they do tend to have higher valuations. So uh, I think if you if you take those things in combination, you could see the share price double over years as the re-rating kind of boosts the earnings growth. And they're not going to be hit by the US tech correction. Well, I think valuation again comes into play there. Again, not not looking at the historic results, but the, the future forecasts based on the, the companies acquired. Um, yeah, I think the valuation underpins it to relatively speaking, to a larger degree than a lot of other tech stocks out there. Tremendous, Jack. Thank you very much indeed. We've run out of time. Damien, back to you. Cool. Thank you, Jack. No, that was really good. Um, 
I personally have always viewed Central Nick as a bit of a fake business. I mean, who uses domain names these days now that we can search for anything? But clearly, as you've mentioned, Central Nick are providing a, a much wider array of services. Um, and I guess they're really, it's a decent business there. So yeah, very interesting, thank you. Now, I'm afraid that is all we have time for. Uh, we have run out of pictures. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. That was, for me, that was as fun as ever. Um, I've learned a great deal about new companies. And I'm sure you have too. Um, so please join me in thanking all the presenters who gave up their time to entertain us this evening. Um, again, as always, I'd like to thank Tamsin and Tim from PI World for kindly hosting the event. Um, there's actually no doubt without their technical know-how, uh, none of this would happen. So really, thank you from me. The next time is going to be in April after a very busy period for results. And uh, we're all looking forward to seeing you back here again. So please make sure you register. Um, and if you want to pitch, just get in touch. All that remains really is for me to thank you all for logging on this evening and joining the conversation with Discord. Um, there wouldn't be an event if you weren't here. And, uh, I, you know, I, I appreciate it. I really do. And if you want to continue the conversation on Discord or Twitter, then that would be fantastic. So have a great evening. Thanks. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.